Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Sikeshida serves as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute and has lectured extensively across the country on topics of pediatric eye conditions and low vision rehabilitation. The Dr. Bill Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric, pediatric eye conditions. Thank you so much, Dr. Bill, for joining, for being our, our wonderful speaker tonight, and we look forward to a great lecture. Oh, thank you very much, Sue, and I want to thank all of you for being out there to listen to this. And uh, we also like to give special thanks to Mr. Joe Yurka from airsla.org who is recording this program for us. Well, tonight I've been asked to do a repeat performance to talk about the visual system and how is it that vision occurs. You know, there's so many times that we have a understanding of vision as though the vision is similar to a camera. But human vision is really much more complicated and it involves much more than just the eyes. We could think of vision as really a three-part process. Uh, number one, the information has to get into the eyes. Number two, the eyes have to send that information to the brain. And number three, various regions of the brain have to process that visual information so that we know what it is. So all in all, with time and research, we have learned that vision is really much, much more complicated, but it has also given us the ability to understand ways that we could treat different types of vision problems. So first, we're going to begin with the visual intake skills, basically looking at the eyes and what are the different structures on the eyes and what's the function of those structures. We could first think about looking at our eyes by basically looking at our eyes in the mirror. One of the first things that you'll notice is that you could see you have a colored iris of the eye, and that gives us the ability to regulate how much light enters the eye. Now, there are some people who have blue eyes, other people have green eyes, and if you look even more carefully, you'll see that there's different multi-colored eyes. But actually, there is one surface on the eye that is actually in front of that, and this is a transparent tissue that is like a clear piece of glass on the front of a fishbowl. And so you don't necessarily see that when you first look at yourself in the mirror. But if you were to take a side view, if you have a friend or relative or another person next to you, and if you look at their eyes from the side, you'll notice that there is a curved tissue, and this curved tissue is actually transparent, is perfectly clear, and that structure is called the cornea. Now, the cornea is really a very, very important tissue because the cornea is what focuses the light rays from whatever it is that we see into our eyes. If we didn't have the cornea, or if the cornea was not curved properly, the light rays would not enter the eyes, and we would not have the type of vision that we have. 
Now, it's also very important to remember that the cornea also plays many different functions. And if you have some of these other symptoms, it may mean that you have a problem with a cornea. First of all, people who have problems with a cornea often are in pain. You know, if you have ever just had an eyelash that fell into your eye and it rubs against the cornea, it is very, very painful. Number two, if you have an injury to the cornea, you also will be very, very sensitive to the sunlight. You may have noticed those times that if you did get an eyelash into your eye and it scratched the cornea, you could barely even open your eyes when you go outside in the direct sunlight. You'll also find, number three, that people who do have problems with the cornea may often have dry eyes. If the cornea is not functioning normally, the tears are not going to be spread over the cornea and you'll have these dry spots, which causes your vision to be very blurred and again, you'll be very, very sensitive. Now, some of the different types of eye diseases that can damage the cornea are, number one, genetic conditions. Some people might inherit a genetic disease and this might be where their mother or the father, or it might be just a combination from the mother and the father. Those genes have resulted in the cornea becoming white. If the cornea is white like that, it really, really affects how well a person could see. It's almost as though somebody sprayed white spray paint over the windshield of your car. Another type of condition that we often see has damage to the cornea is when a person has glaucoma. Children born with glaucoma, which means that the eye has too much fluid in it, they often will have a white cornea as well. So when these children are born, they will have a lot of difficulty keeping their eyes open because things are often just very, very bright for them. Now, fortunately, with cornea diseases, Ophthalmologists now are able to perform many different types of surgeries. One of them is a cornea transplant, where a cornea from another child could then be removed and implanted onto that recipient. We also are finding that there's other types of treatments that are using met metabolic processes to see if they could then clear the cornea and this is also something that's very, very effective. And number three, we now know that there are very advanced procedures using a laser. And this is called LASIK, L-A-S-I-K, LASIK, where the laser beam can reshape the curvature of the cornea. And as a result, an adult may not have to wear glasses because we could change the shape of the cornea to incorporate the person's prescription in there. So it is a very, very important tissue, and it is something that we need to be very aware of. So when you do look at your students or children, you want to make certain that they could adapt to different lighting levels. Number two, does it seem as though they're blinking excessively, as though their eyes are in pain or a discomfort, or are they also blinking their eyes or keeping their eyes closed because it seems as though their eyes are dry? So 
The next thing that happens is that when we look at something, the light rays focus through the cornea, and the cornea will then refocus those light rays so that it goes into the pupil of the eye. Now, again, if you're looking at yourself in the mirror, the pupil is the black circular structure in the center, and it is surrounded by the colored iris. Now, if you turn the lights on your bathroom on and off and you look at your pupil, you will notice that your pupil will enlarge when it's dark and it will shrink or become smaller when it's very bright. This is the way that the eye is able to regulate how much light is going inside the eye. And it's a very, very important feature to be able to adjust to different lighting levels like this. When children are not able to adapt to these different types of lighting levels, these are the children who will definitely benefit from wearing sunglasses. In other cases, we might even fit them with a tinted contact lens to help them to see better because if we do not have these tinted lenses, it will be so bright that these children really won't be able to see very, very well. Now, there are some other different types of conditions that can affect the pupil itself. One of them is called aniridia, A-N-I-R-I-D-I-A. And this is a situation in which the iris is not there. At birth, the iris didn't develop, so as a result, the pupil is the entire size of the front portion of the eye. And for these children, they're very, very sensitive to the light, and they usually will have nystagmus, the uncontrollable shaking of the eyes. If you ever do see a child in your class who does have aniridia, it is very, very important that you look at the report written by the eye doctor and make certain that they have tested the child for glaucoma and cataracts. Glaucoma, again, is when there's too much pressure in the eye. And a cataract, which we'll talk about next, is when the lens inside the eye becomes clouded. Children with aniridia are at greater risk of developing these problems, and so you may even have to remind the parents to be examined by an eye doctor who could check for these specific conditions. Another type of condition that also might affect the pupil is something that's called the iris coloboma, C-O-L-O-B-O-M-A. And this is a situation in which just a portion of the iris didn't develop. And in most cases, it is where the bottom portion of the iris is missing. So when you look at these children, and let's say that you pull down their lower eyelid a little bit, you will notice that they do not have the colored iris on the very bottom portion. When you look at their pupil, it almost looks like those old-fashioned keyholes in the old-fashioned doors where you have the circle, and on the bottom portion you then have the ridge. Now, with those kids, they are partially sensitive to the sunlight, but they do not have the real severe sensitivity. When a child does have that type of iris coloboma, we then also 
have to be very, very concerned if the bottom portion of the eye may be missing. And that is something that is called a choroidal coloboma. And this is where the entire bottom portion of the eye is missing the tissue that provides blood supply to the retina. So if a child has the iris coloboma, we then need to make certain that the inside of the retina on the bottom is there. And lastly, if a child does have that iris coloboma, we also want to check the optic nerve because in many cases, the bottom portion of the optic nerve is missing. So it's kind of interesting. You think about the iris is missing, the choroid might be missing, and the bottom of the optic nerve is missing. It almost goes along in a straight line developmentally. And that is actually, in fact, true. If you then open the mouths of these children and you look at the roof of their mouths, many times they will have a cleft palate where the palate didn't develop. And then we could even study this even further. These children may often also have a hole, a hole in their heart where that didn't develop. So this shows you how the development of the human body and the human eye, it all really coincides. So it could all be linear and it could be associated with each other. So what this means is that you, as the person working with these kids, you may often be the one who diagnoses a lot of these other types of conditions. In other words, you won't make the the true diagnosis because you're not a doctor, but you will be the person to give that kind of information and so that the child will be evaluated by a doctor because there are so many times that kids come in for an eye appointment and we see these things and they have not been identified by their pediatrician. Okay, so we've gone through the cornea and now we are having the light rays go through the pupil Immediately behind the pupil is a lens, and this is a lens that you typically cannot see by looking at yourself in the mirror because the lens is transparent. But that lens kind of is about the size of an M&M. If you look at a plain M&M, and the lens is transparent so that light rays could travel through it, and what that lens does is it changes shape. When we look at something that's very close, such as our fingers or food that's on our plate, that lens is going to change shape and it becomes very thick. And that is how the child or the adult is able to see things that are close to them. When the child or the adult looks far away, such as at a mountain, that muscle called the ciliary muscle it relaxes and the lens becomes very thin and that's how we're able to focus far. Now there are situations where some children are born where that lens is not perfectly clear. It is clouded. And when the child has a clouded lens like that, the light rays cannot get through that lens and it makes the child's vision very, very blurred. The situation when the lens is clouded like that is called a cataract. 
and cataracts are common among children, and it's especially common among children whose parents had cataracts as a child. So there's often a very strong family inheritance pattern with that. For these children who have the congenital cataract, it's very important that they're evaluated by an ophthalmologist and that cataract surgery is performed to remove that clouded lens. When you remove that clouded lens, it now gives light the opportunity to focus inside the eye. If we do not remove that cataract, these children usually will develop a condition called amblyopia, meaning that the brain doesn't fully develop because the light doesn't reach the retina and the optic nerve and the brain because of that cataract. So the surgeons could very easily remove that lens and they do not usually insert an artificial lens when the child is very young. The reason for that is that the eye is still growing and changing shape. But when the child is a bit older, an artificial lens implant can be placed in the eye. During the early infant years of life, these kids are fit with glasses, and these glasses always should have a bifocal. Now, a bifocal is that type of lens that it has a little piece, a little segment that looks like a sideways D. And that little segment, it has a additional power so that when the child is looking at a book, looking at his fingers, looking at food, he could move his eyes down and look through that little segment and things will then be clear. And then if it's a little girl and if she is then going to look far away, she could lift her eyes and look through the regular portion of the lens and she could see distance objects clearly. So a child who has had the cataract needs a lens that has two different powers so that they could focus at different distances. In some cases, we may even prescribe for these young children a different type of a lens that is called a trifocal. And this is where there are three different powers in the lens so that if a child has to see a intermediate distance, let's say that that child is a bit older now and is playing the piano, we could set a portion of the lens to focus on the music and another portion of the lens to focus on a book, and then the other portion to focus far away. Another thing that's very important to understand about the lens is that when a lens is in the eye, it is very, very effective at filtering the ultraviolet and the blue light. And these are the wavelengths of light that are potentially very dangerous for the eye. So when a child has a lens removed during cataract surgery, it's always very helpful to incorporate the ultraviolet filter and the blue filter into the glasses for the child who's had that type of cataract. We also know that the lens inside the eye, which is controlled by the ciliary muscle, that lens sometimes just doesn't work very well for some children. And we may see a child, for example, who's seven or eight years old and is just struggling at school. 
we examine the eyes and the eyes look healthy. There's no cataract. There's nothing wrong with the tissues, but this child is having difficulty sustaining a clear focus on the reading material. This is a situation where a child who may have very clear distance, 20-20 sight, but may have difficulties reading, and this is because the ciliary muscle doesn't change the shape of the lens very well. We see this many, many times with children who have reading difficulties, many times when children have short attention when they're trying to read, and also when children are taking different types of medications. Often these are medications that are prescribed to improve attention. These types of medications reduce the ability to focus. So the point to this is that when a child receives an eye examination, it's also very important to evaluate the visual function and not only just the structures of the eye. Okay, now after light passes through the cornea, then it goes through the pupil, and then it is focused through the crystal lens, it eventually is going to then focus on the inside of the eye, and this inside tissue, or almost like a wallpaper that's covering the inside of the eye, is called the retina. If you could sort of imagine that you took an orange and you sliced it in half and then you scooped out all of the orange that you could eat, you're left with the orange peel. And when you look at the inside of it, it has that lighter color. Now, there is millions and millions and millions of cells throughout that entire inner portion of the orange peel. And that inner portion of the orange peel, we're going to actually say that that is what is called the retina. Now, if you took a laser beam, the little laser pointers that people use during lectures, and if you shined that laser pointer through the cornea, and it would focus it then through the pupil, and then through the lens, it would focus as a sharp little dot right in the center of the retina. That region where that little tiny dot about the size of a tip of a pin focuses, that little area there is called the fovea. And that is spelled F-O-V-E-A. The fovea is the part of the retina that has the highest concentration of cone cells. And this is significant because the cone cells give you the ability to see details clearly. The cone cells also give you the ability to see color. So it is that small region of the retina that is responsible for you being able to identify a letter, a word, a person's face, and all of these colors. Now, the region that surrounds that little laser beam of light is called the macula. And the macula would be a little bit larger than the diameter of a pencil eraser. So it's, again, very, very small. And that entire central region of the macula and the fovea is what you use to... 
Due to a technical difficulty, approximately 43 seconds of Dr. Bill's presentation was lost at this point. His talk now resumes. It is a thought. We're believing that these stem cells will produce cone cells that could give us back this type of vision. And this is very, very important, especially with adults who have a disease called macular degeneration, where that region of the retina has become damaged. Macular degeneration is the leading cause of legal blindness among adults. And what we do know is that stem cells potentially have the potential of treating this condition and restoring clear vision for many of these people. Now, you might say, what about the rest of the retina? We talked about the entire inside wallpaper of the orange peel is the retina. What about the rest of it? Well, the remainder of the retina that covers the entire peripheral edges, this is called the peripheral retina and is made up of rod cells. Now, the rod cells are very, very important as well. Even though they do not give us the ability to see colors and small details, they give us the ability to see at night. They also give us the ability to see things that are surrounding us. So when you are walking down the street and you notice that there's something on the ground and you step over it so you don't trip, it is the rod cells in the peripheral retina that give you that peripheral vision. If you're driving and you notice somebody's crossing the street and you see that through the corner of your eye, it is the rod cells that gives you that vision. Or if you're out there and you're going to be playing different types of sports, it's the rod cells that give you that ability to see the ball coming from the different corners. So the rod cells give you the peripheral vision, which helps you with balance and orientation. Now, there are some children who are born with different types of eye diseases that can affect the rod cells. One of them is called retinopathy of prematurity. And retinopathy of prematurity it is a condition in which the rod cells are not developed normally because these children are born prematurely. If a child is born prematurely, typically before 32 weeks of gestation, there's the possibility that these cells and the rod cells do not develop normally and the blood vessels in the peripheral retina tend to bleed and leak. When the blood is leaking inside the retina, scar tissue develops and the scar tissue pulls and it detaches the retina. So the ophthalmologists then try to save the eye by performing laser and these lasers can then stop the bleeding at the location of where the leak is. But each time that the doctors have to use these lasers, it kills the rod cells there. So as a result, many children with a retinopathy of prematurity have reduced peripheral vision, and this reduced peripheral vision will often affect their mobility, where these kids don't walk well. Uh, they trip over steps and curbs. They have a hard time possibly playing sports. And these kids often 
are going to have a lot of difficulty with locating things that they're searching for in the house. Another eye disease that does affect the rod cells of the retina is called retinitis pigmentosa. And retinitis pigmentosa, it is one of the more common types of diseases that affects the retina rod cells. Now, in retinitis pigmentosa, there are many different forms of it. Some of them are strongly inherited, and others do not seem to be as strongly inherited. But in almost all cases, it begins by affecting the rod cells, and these kids cannot see at night. If you walk with them at night, they may not even want to move. If they're trying to go to sleep, they'll get very frightened if you turn off the lights because they can't see under dim illumination. And as they become older, usually by the time that they're in their late teenage years, it may even then begin to affect their central vision. But again, with retinitis pigmentosa, we are also very, very encouraged with the clinical trial studies that are being performed to see if stem cells can reproduce some of the function of the purple retina. There's also another treatment that's available where there is a electrical microchip that is surgically inserted into the eye of a person who has retinitis pigmentosa. And then they wear a pair of glasses that have a very tiny camera. You could barely even see this camera. It's like the size of your thumbnail. Now that particular camera that's in the glasses, it takes a picture of what you're looking at, just like a video camera. It sends electrical signals to that electrical chip and that chip then sends it to the brain so that the brain can have vision. So with this particular treatment, which is called the Argus, A-R-G-U-S, Argus 2, it has restored vision for people who do have retinitis pigmentosa. Okay, so now after the retina has received all of this light information, Chemical processes and electrical processes occur, and all of these electrical signals are then sent through a nerve in the back of the eye. And this nerve is almost like a straw. You could think of it almost like a straw. But inside that straw, there are 800,000 little fibers. 800,000. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how the eye has been developed. Now, each of these little wires are connected to one of those cells in the retina, and this is how stage two begins. The second stage of vision is when the electrical signals from the retina are then sent down that wire, and it goes from the eye, and it passes all the way to the back of the brain where the visual information is processed. That optic nerve that sends all of that information, it's extremely important. But we also know that there's conditions that can affect and cause damage to that optic nerve. One of them is a condition that we are currently studying, which is called optic nerve hypoplasia. Optic nerve hypoplasia is the fastest growing cause of new cases of blindness among children. 
Hypo means it's under, plasia is growth. So there's an undergrowth of the number of fibers in there. So maybe instead of 800,000, there may only be 100,000. Maybe there's only 50,000. And when there's fewer fibers sending information to the brain, the brain does not release and receive as much information. Another type of thing is that there could be optic nerve atrophy. Sometimes if a child is not breathing properly at birth and doesn't receive oxygen, it could cause damage to these optic nerve fibers. Another way that the optic nerve can become damaged is actually from trauma. Some children might be playing and they fall off the crib. They hit their head and it causes damage to the optic nerve. For these children who have damage to the optic nerve, it's very important that they do receive vision stimulation services because we have seen how children who have optic nerve hypoplasia, optic nerve atrophy, that these kids are not necessarily blind. And with the visual stimulation, their vision can, in fact, improve. So this is the importance of programs that are doing all of this early intervention. It's very, very important that you understand how to provide that type of visual stimulation. Okay, and then the last part of vision is basically when the back of the brain receives this visual information. If you feel the very, very back of your head, you may feel there's a bump right in the very, very center of the back of your head. Now, that back portion of your head, it is called the occipital lobe of the brain. The occipital lobe of the brain is the visual cortex. That is the primary function of that entire back portion of the brain is to process visual information. Now, what's really interesting about how vision is processed, it just doesn't stop at one location. Once the visual information is received at the bump in the center of your brain, that center bump region processes your central vision. It processes all the small details that you could see. It processes the colors that you see. So if you unfortunately had a child and your child fell back while she was roller skating and she hit the back center of the occipital of the brain and the brain started to bleed there, it is possible that that young girl could lose all of her central vision. The reason for that, it is not because there's anything wrong with the eyes, but that central portion of the brain has been damaged and it can't process that information anymore. Now, the regions just to the right and to the left of the occipital central region, those regions process the peripheral vision. So the right occipital lobe of the brain, that processes all the visual peripheral information that a person sees on the left side, the opposite side. And the left occipital lobe, it processes everything that we see on the right side. So if a person happened to fall and they damaged the left occipital lobe of the brain, 
it's very possible that that person cannot see anything on the right side of both eyes. They do not have normal peripheral vision. And this is a really interesting story. You know, this is a friend of mine, and she was an adult, and one of the things that she always told me is that, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, when she drives, she never likes to make right-hand turns. She loves to make left-hand turns, even here in Los Angeles. She wasn't born in Los Angeles. And I thought, my, that is so interesting because most people who drive, they prefer not to make left-hand turns because they're a little bit more dangerous. And then she said, you know, I'd like to get my eyes checked because I would like to be a faster reader. She says, when I read, I just seem to be reading slow. It's like I read one word at a time. And so I did the evaluation. And much to my surprise, I learned that she had no peripheral vision on the right side of either eye. So when she read, she could only see one word at a time. She couldn't see the words on the right side of the word that she was looking at. When she was driving, and if she was going to make a right turn, she couldn't see the sidewalk or the right you know, side of her. So it became very anxious. She'd have to scan and look all the time. And when I talked to her and I demonstrated that to her, she absolutely just couldn't believe that she did not have that peripheral vision on that side. She never knew. And the reason she's never known is because it really hasn't been brought to her attention and the brain tries to fill this information in. The brain will try to give information so that we will never know that we have that type of a blind spot. And this is really interesting that as I was going through my situation of becoming blind, as I was becoming blind, I always said to myself, I don't see all of these black spots. And the reason for that is because, again, the visual cortex fills things in. Now, another thing about the uh, occipital lobe is that the left occipital lobe is very important for the process of reading. When we're trying to read and decode and sound out words, that information happens on that left side of the brain. On the other hand, the right side of the brain is very important for visual spatial processes. If you are good at drawing, if you're a, a model builder, if you're very creative and you can visualize, you are using that right occipital lobe of the brain. Another region that is also involved in vision is the frontal lobe of the brain. After the occipital lobe of the brain receives that information, it will send signals to the frontal lobe of the brain. And this prefrontal type of cortex, it controls our eye movements. It controls how we scan our eyes from left to right when we're reading. So in the event that if someone has weakness in that lobe of the brain, they may have difficulty moving their eyes quickly from left to right when they're reading. Or if an infant falls, hits the forehead, it could also affect how quickly and how accurately that child moves the eyes in reading pattern. So we see this all the time. Every day at our office when we're evaluating children's eye movements for reading, we see that there are some kids 
who do not move their eyes very well or very accurately from left to right. And as a result, they do not read quickly. They do not read accurately. When they read numbers, they often transpose them, such as instead of 367, they might read it as 736. They're in the wrong order. So these are things that we want to identify so that we could then later treat these by giving them different types of exercises. And then we also have the temporal and the parietal lobes of the brain, and they also are involved with vision. The parietal lobes of the brain, they are involved with the ability to follow a moving ball. If you're playing tennis and you have to follow the moving ball, well, the parietal lobes are controlling the eyes to be able to follow it. Many kids who have suffered from seizures, these seizures are stem from problems to the parietal lobe of the brain. These kids can't follow a ball. They can't catch a ball. You toss them a ball. They can't catch it. These are the kids who often have reduced function of the parietal lobe, and they would benefit from having different types of activities to try to develop these visual skills because they can be developed. We then also are looking at other regions of the brain, the temporal lobes that are involved with sequential processing. Can you remember information in the right order? Do you have that ability to remember what you have seen in the correct order? These are all visual perception skills that are very, very important to enable a child to understand what they have seen. So all in all, you could see that vision is a, a very, very complex process that involves much more than the eyes. But when you do evaluate and you work with a child and you make these observations, based on what you have learned tonight, you may have some suspicions of what is wrong. And you could then direct the families so that they can receive the appropriate vision specialist. The reason I say that is because what we're talking about here, this is something that not all eye doctors will test for. For example, when you see an ophthalmologist who is an expert in cataract surgery or in eye muscle surgery, they usually will not evaluate the visual processing. On the other hand, if you see an optometrist and this is an optometrist who is very effective in prescribing glasses, many of them may not be experienced in evaluating visual perception. And many, many eye doctors, they are not experienced in evaluating children with low vision. So you want to then get an understanding of what the child's needs are and then make the appropriate recommendation. And uh, Sue Strafasi and I, uh, we would be very happy to help to direct you to doctors who provide these types of uh, work. So at this time, I'm going to open it up to questions. Uh, if you have a question, unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you could introduce your name if you like, but if you prefer not to, you don't have to. But uh, you may go ahead and ask Sue or myself any questions. Any, any questions? Dr. Bill, I have a quick question regarding the lens. You previously mentioned about the lens implant. Um, and 
you were saying typically it's best to wait uh, wait to actually do any kind of uh, of lens implant. Would you recommend any particular age or time, or is it a is it a developmental aspect? And you said it's a matter of the eye developing. When do you yes. think if a, if a child needs that? When do you when would you recommend that that it happen? Yes, that's a really good question. And what I have usually found was that when children are at the age of 18, that's usually a good time to then consider the implant. Now, one of the reasons why it's also helpful to wait is that the power of the implant that the child will need, it really changes. For example, for a very young child, say a one-year-old who's had cataract surgery, and we prescribe glasses for them to uh, replace the power of the lens that was removed. They may need a lens power that's a 30-power lens. Now, as they get older, their eyes grow and their prescription need changes. And by the time that they may be 18 years old, they only need a 14-power lens. So if you were to implant them with the lens at the age of one, by the time that they're 18, they may need to wear such thick glasses the opposite direction that it really doesn't become the most effective way to maximize vision. So I would usually say 18, but there may be some situations, you know, there's some kids... Believe it or not, but some kids will, will not keep these glasses on. They may have a tactile sensitivity, and they just will not wear it. I remember one young man that we saw, he just, for whatever reason, would not keep the glasses on. He would always chew on the lenses. He just loved to chew on them. And so uh, we had the doctor put in the implant, and that was the best solution. Okay. So I would say 18. Okay, thank you, Dr. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. Yes. Does anybody else have any other questions uh, about uh, how vision works or the different types of eye care professionals? Okay, well, uh, I guess there's no additional questions. <laughs> and again, I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Joe Yerka from airsla.org for recording this. And this podcast will be up on the website. And I'd really appreciate it, too, if you share it with other teachers for the visually impaired and parents and families, because I think that many of them would definitely uh, appreciate learning how vision really works and how we could best help them. Uh, If you have any other questions regarding this topic or you want to just simply ask me something privately, uh, you could email me, and my email address is... Uh, Dr. Bill Foundation, D-R-B-I-L-L Foundation at gmail.com. And you could also email Sue if you have any questions about our program. And Sue, what's the best email that you would like for them to contact you? Yeah, the best email for me is just the S, Strafasi, that's S-S-T-R-A-S-S-N-Frank-A-C-I at BrailleInstitute.org. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody, and hope to see you uh, next month when we bring you another great lecture on children's vision. Good night, everybody.